You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Today on Startups for Good, I talk with Tiffany Chu, who's a designer, planner, and CEO and co-founder of Remix. She and her team build a collaborative software platform for 350 plus cities around the world to plan their mobility future. Remix has 65 employees serving clients in 22 countries. They're a Series B startup, VC-backed SaaS platform. On this episode, we talk about the instant product market fit that she experienced, her career arc from designer to CEO, how she worked with investors and their fundraising history, as well as how the mission of the company has helped them and more about how they see what it is. She's been named Forbes 30 Under 30, LinkedIn's Next Wave of Leaders Under 35, Curbs to Young Guns and featured in South by Southwest, Helsinki Design Week, and New York Times Cities for Tomorrow Conference, and more. Remix has also been recognized as both a 2020 World Economic Forum tech pioneer and a 2020 Bloomberg NEF, that's a new energy finance pioneer, for the company's work in empowering cities to make transportation decisions with sustainability and equity at the forefront. She currently serves as the commissioner of the San Francisco Department of Environment, and sits on the city's Congestion Pricing Policy Advisory Committee. Previously, Tiffany was a fellow at Code for America, the first UX hire at Zipcar, and is an alum of Y Combinator. We'll talk about that a little bit. Tiffany has a background in architecture and urban planning from MIT. Stay tuned. I think you'll enjoy this. Tiffany, welcome to Start Us for Good. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Miles. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about Remix and so many things. Um, Maybe we could start with, how did you decide to be a founder? Well, I didn't. I would say I'm definitely one of those accidental and intentional founders. What I am, though, I, I am a designer and a urban planner. And Remix really came out of a funny, it's a grassroots side project that my friends and I, my colleagues and I at Code for America worked on when we were at the nonprofit and uh, really blossomed into something much bigger, um, something that we didn't really have any idea that it would become. And then that was the initial impetus that led me to become a founder. Wonderful. So what got you started on this side project? So at Code for America, which you are very familiar with, They have all of the fellows, and this was in 2014 when they were running the fellowship program. They have fellows get to know each other by doing a hackathon. And at the hackathon, me and Sam, Danny and Dan and a couple other folks who were all sitting near each other at the office, we wanted to see what would happen if we used some of the new cool open source geospatial components and tools that were just coming out and build a grassroots way for residents of San Francisco to suggest a better transit network and better transit routes to the city. That was what we built. And we unveiled the prototype at uh, Beta, which was the mid-year fellows event. And Code for America 
recorded it and tweeted what we had built. And it was like, you know, a little widget, you can drag and drop a route on a map and, you know, see how much it might cost, you know, who might ride it, et cetera. And it went viral on the internet. We got about 20 journalists who asked us, hey, like, how did this come about? Can we write about it? So they wrote about it. And then we got about 200 planners from cities and agencies around the world who then emailed us and said, hey, I saw what you built. Can I please use it? And this was a really powerful market poll. I mean, a kind of product market fit that most founders, I think, don't get to experience. Yeah, we were very confused about what was happening um, because at the time we were all working on our individual team fellowship projects. So I was working with the city of Charlotte and their IT department on helping them draft an open data policy, launch an open data portal. So that was like my main focus. And then this funny side project just took off in this way that we had never expected. I remember we were up in the Marin Headlands for a Code for America summit, not a summit, it was the um, offsite. And we didn't have any reception. And as we were driving in a bus across the Golden Gate Bridge, going back to San Francisco, all of a sudden our phone started blowing up because people had just been emailing us like literally all day because that was when all the press went out. And we were just dumbfounded. We like looked at our phones and we were like, is this a mistake? What just happened here? And governments are not known for short sales cycles or quick decisions. You had people using the product very quickly, right? Yes, there was no sales cycle. It wasn't a, we didn't even know, I didn't even know what sales meant at the time. People were just using it. It was like a free prototype that you could play around in. You could navigate to, that was just really compelling to people, both armchair and professional planners. And we had about 30,000 maps made over the next couple months from, gosh, hundreds and hundreds of different cities around the world, both in, you know, really developed cities and also, you know, very emerging market cities as well. So I remember just going into the Code for America office and looking at what new maps were made. And all of a sudden there were maps made in Africa and Asia. And then the World Bank reached out to us and we were really just kind of amazed. And we didn't know what we had hit on, but we had, we had hit upon something. And how did you decide to turn it into a company? Once all of that hullabaloo happened, we started with, I guess, user research. So we wanted to know what exactly we had hit on. I had gone to architecture and planning school and transportation is kind of adjacent to that. So I literally looked up on my LinkedIn, anybody in my network who had anything about transportation related in their profile. Um, and I messaged them and invited them over for coffee at the office. And we did a user research session with them and asked them, you know, what's your role? What's your job? Like, what are your goals? What tools do you use? And I think we talked to maybe about 10, 15 people. And it was really fun, you know, just diving into a whole nother space. And as we got to the end of the fellowship, this was, you know, December 2014 at this point, we decided that, well, first of all, none of us had jobs after the fellowship ended. So we didn't know what we were going to do. So we might as well just keep following this thread 
and see how far it might go. So we applied to uh, YC and we got in. I think we may have been one of the first ever government GovTech companies to get into YC. And that was that was the moment. Once we got into YC, we were like, okay, we should probably incorporate. <laughs> yeah, you had customers lining up from around the world. You had a well-established, well-respected incubator, accelerator, ready to help you. It's probably time to incorporate. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. I think we signed our first ever customer contract with the state of Oregon. And I don't think they knew that we hadn't incorporated at the time. Wow. And you then uh, raised some money from big name venture capitalists. What was that like? So I will say that my co-founder and the former CEO, Sam, he did all of the fundraising. I was, you know, kind of along for the ride. And I think our approach was we really wanted to work with the best and also the folks who saw something there that most people didn't. And we ended up choosing Sequoia because they had a really interesting hypothesis around now was the time for government and digital transformation within government, which is an area that most investors, if you said the word government, which I know you're very well aware of, Miles, they would just run away from you and not look back. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think because of our traction, not really withstanding the fact that none of the founders had any semblance of sales or marketing experience. We were all product people and engineers. We wanted an investor that really believed in this hypothesis, which most investors didn't at the time. And so we chose Sequoia and they've been along for the journey ever since. And by picking a well-known firm early on in the company, did you have any questions in your mind about potential signaling if they chose not to follow on or participate in the next round? Yes, that was obviously always a, a big concern. But I think at the time, we didn't realize how big of a concern that was for real, because we, you know, we had never raised money before. This is our first rodeo, everybody, well, except for Dan. Dan had started um, an ed tech company before when he was at Penn. Um, but for you know, the majority of our brain space, we weren't thinking that far ahead. But we were pretty focused on just listening to our customers and making sure that we could transform this crazy amount of energy into something real and sustainable and something that looks like revenue. So that's what we were really heads down focused on. Honestly, I think if, you know, I were to go through this journey again and raise money, I probably would have thought about that question maybe 10 times as hard as I did the first time. Well, it did work out for you. <laughs> I mean, so far. So far. Great, great. <laughs> So for your Series B, how did you approach fundraising? So for our Series B, as you become a more mature company, you have a clear idea of who you are and who you're going to be. So we wanted to find a partner, an investor that believed in the same specific vertical. They had like, you know, a vertical thesis about uh, something that we really cared about, which for us, it was around sustainability. And for them, uh, we ended up going with Energy Impact Partners. They were 
you know, one of the best known VCs around helping companies and markets around the energy transition. And so there's a huge amount of overlap between transportation and energy and that kind of belief in that thesis and that singular focus, which is what EIP is about, um, really was very compelling for us. And we wanted to be aligned on a mission level. And we felt that they were, um, they were very aligned with us in that way. You were talking about that Sam started out as a CEO and you saw yourself originally as more of a designer, planner. How have you made the transition to being CEO now? Well, that was also an adventure. So Sam and I were actually both designers. Um, Sam was the one who convinced the, th- the three others of us to actually think about starting a company as a viable option after the fellowship. If it weren't for Sam, we all probably would have gone to get our various individual mid-level tech jobs somewhere. And so as the CEO, you know, he really did an incredible job uh, building the company for the first five years. And at the end of last year, um, at the end of 2019, he was ready to take a step back. And, you know, I had been the the face of the company externally to our customers for so long, it made a lot of sense for me to, to step up into the CEO role. And I felt it was a fairly natural transition in that I had actually been doing a lot of the sales and the marketing and the external facing stuff as a founder. I mean, we were all doing lots of different things, but that's kind of where a lot of my energies landed. I think maybe because I'm, I was the most extroverted one out of the four of us. And so I've been, you know, figuring out for the last 12 months, what it means to be CEO, not just as CEO, but what it means to be CEO during COVID and how to really develop and retain and nurture a team during a really difficult time. I probably wouldn't have picked this year to step up if I had known what was in store, but you know, here we are. Here we are. How has COVID impacted the business? Well, if you had talked to me in March and April, you know, I was literally running around with my head cut off because I didn't know if our city and agency customers, of which now we're around the 350 mark, if they would all just call us up and say, we're sorry, like, we got to go. We have no idea what's going to happen with our budget. So we're going to peace out. So I was like, so scared. And it was a really, really low point at the time. So I mean, a lot of other founders probably were doing the same thing, you know, in their own respective sectors except for, you know, Zoom and Slack and everybody in those <laughs> in those areas. But for, you know, B2B and B2G, it was this huge, wide crevasse of the unknown. And so what I did was, you know, I huddled with my exec team. We actually figured out um, a financial plan that would allow us a path to you know, basically get to profitability in a reasonable amount of time. And uh, we didn't, we did that by actually reducing our future hiring. We had, you know, pretty aggressive hiring plans and we cut back on those um, instead of laying off um, anybody on our team. So, you know, really proud to say that we didn't have to do, go through any layoffs. I know many, many founders did, and that is probably the 
the fear of that kept me up many, many nights in March and April. And as we kind of continued through May, June, we saw, you know, a couple customers in maybe more tourism heavy cities, areas that are like a little bit more reliant on sales tax, you know, say, hey, maybe we can't continue the contract, but you know, we'll come back later or, you know, something like that. And so there were a few of those, but then by and large, we also realized there was this huge amount of energy from cities and agencies that were just like, okay, we have to figure out how to adapt our transit system and our transportation networks to help the city become more resilient during COVID. So it was like, on the one hand, we had like a couple customers leave because of budget uncertainty and budget crises. But then on The other hand and the other hand became much more prevalent was just this uptick in planning activity in our backend and remix. It was very, very confusing, the the signals that we were getting at the start of COVID. At the same time that your customers were worried that they wouldn't be able to afford the product, they needed it more than ever because of the dynamic changing nature of planning their transit during this, this time of pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And to illustrate that point a little bit more for the audience who might not understand the ins and outs of transportation, for example, at the SFMTA, Muni had to go from 89 routes to 17 because they had to reduce their own budget and they had operators who were out sick with COVID and they just couldn't operate the system the way that they used to. So we saw in Remix literally Muni like cutting routes over the course of a weekend uh, in Remix and, you know, figuring out obviously which ones are workhorse routes and which ones we had to keep running because that's, you know, a lot of essential workers and frontline workers use that route to get to hospitals and grocery stores and et cetera. So every single agency was doing some version of that. And then in addition to cutting routes, you had to figure out, well, if and when the city reopens, you know, there's all these phases, you know, level yellow and orange and red, and every phase needed to correlate to a different level of reopening of the transportation network as well. So we saw that happening in Remix, like all these new phases and iterations of service planning, where typically you would only do this type of huge holistic network rethink, redesign once a year, maybe, maybe once every quarter, if you're a fairly um, active uh, transit network. But we saw this happening like every single week, every single month, there was a new set of changes that the cities were rolling out from slow streets to uh, restaurant, outdoor dining, to uh, pop-up bike lanes. We saw all of that being planned in Remix and we had never seen this happen as fast before. Well, thank you for being open about your experience personally and the fear that you felt. Um, It's a tough time to go through when you're not sure what the future of the business will be. Yeah, it was rough. (laughs) I'm curious, has the sense of mission in the business uh, been helpful to recruiting or getting investors? uh, Or is that something that has been mainly about your own motivation? I would say the mission is first and foremost why we're able to hire the talent that we are. And the reason why is because anybody could work at any tech company now with, you know, any some level of skill set. 
And the differentiator from a recruiting standpoint is, can you get up and go to work every day with a group of colleagues who care as deeply about the same things that you do? And at Remix for us, it's about access. It's about access to opportunity. And that's what mobility and transportation stand for. It's about climate change. You know, transportation is the single largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. So getting people into more sustainable modes, that is a huge climate change crises issue that transportation can actually help solve if we do it right. So it's like these two axes around transportation mobility being a social justice issue as well as an environmental issue. Usually some intersection of those two areas is what gets people excited to work at Remix and it's why, you know, I get up to go to work every day. And I think that has been a pretty strong differentiator for us in the way that we hire. That's wonderful. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. How has micro mobility fit in with what cities are looking for or with the products as you're um, building them? Yeah, so micromobility is really exciting because it presents a whole nother set of form factors of options that cities can help make available to their communities as an alternative to the single occupancy vehicle. And in many places where transit might not be viable, maybe the density isn't there, or maybe the funding's not there, what have you, cities are at this point where you cannot just give your community the option to walk or to buy you know, a $20,000 vehicle in order for you to have any access to any opportunities. That just is not the way that local government should position themselves. So what we've seen micromobility is a really innovative way to help plug that gap and to make space for those trips that are you know, between half a mile and you know three miles, which is typically where people are, are spending most of their time outside of their house anyways. And I think the entire industry has been really enamored with that concept around giving people more options. So that's been the pro side of micromobility and anything that gets people away from the emissions of single occupancy vehicles, I get excited about and Remix gets excited about. I think where there gets to be a little bit of tension is when you have a lot of VC money just kind of being pummeled and thrown into micromobility technology companies and mobility operating companies in general. And that vast differential between how much VC money is going into that versus how much money is going into underinvested communities in general, um, places where, you know, the road hasn't been paved for 80 years because that street has not been prioritized, whether it's due to equity reasons or other reasons. Um, There's just kind of this huge mismatch in perception around who micromobility is for. And so I think that's kind of the conversations in which cities are starting to engage on. And I think 
the more that micromobility speaks the language of cities, the more that micromobility tries to become a part of the holistic transportation network, along with transit and pedestrian paths and bike lanes, the better our communities will be off. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying there are problems, but you're optimistic about the way micromobility fits into the transportation landscape. Oh, yes, 100%. Now you've launched products specifically or a product specifically to address micromobility data needs that a city has. I'm curious about innovating after you had such a big bang for your first product. Has that made it harder to create new ones? So what I'll what I'll share here is I think because we had such strong product market fit pull at the very beginning, um, it set an extremely high bar for every single new subsequent product that we experimented with. You know, we as a team, we weren't content just to, you know, be a, a one hit wonder. We knew that we wanted to have more impact beyond just, you know, public transit planning. We wanted to figure out what are all the other ways that we can make transportation successful in a city. And a lot of them are actually quite adjacent to public transit. So one of our next products was actually around street design because we had heard from so many cities and agencies that the reason why their transit networks were running slowly was because they were buses were getting stuck in traffic and cities were not prioritizing transit above cars in uh, in a common corridor. And so we wanted to help cities think about allocating the right of way in a street to prioritize the most people within the least amount of space, which would be transit. So that was like a very natural progression of our product roadmap. And then once all of the bike shares and scooters and everything, et cetera, tricycles, motorbikes, e-bikes, et cetera, landed on our streets a couple years ago, we saw that as a huge opportunity to more clearly connect the dots between all of these new mobility options and helping cities think about how to fit those into the overall mobility picture with regards to space allocation. So that's why we created our mobility product to basically work hand in hand with our street design and our transit product so that cities would no longer be planning in a silo of every single mode in its own department, in its own team. Um, And you could actually see your entire transportation picture at once. And so with that high bar, do you feel like you've been able to reach it? I would say it's been really challenging to recreate that exact moment that we felt you know, riding back across the Golden Gate Bridge after our offsite and just seeing, you know, hundreds of emails flood into our inboxes with people wanting to use our product. Like, I don't know if if I tried for the rest of my life, if I could ever create recreate that again. I think what, the way that we have approached that knowing and being, you know, the pragmatist that we are, if we can't recreate that exact magic moment again, what we can do is to use a lot of the success that we've had as a jumping off point for understanding user needs at a deep level to allow us to uncover other pain points that are adjacent to where we are now and use that to lead where our product roadmap should go next. And you've been successful with that, which is great. One of the things I was curious about, I've had a bit of a theory that the way you were able at the beginning in part, part of the reason you were able to 
move so quickly in sales cycles with governments that normally take longer to buy is because you were replacing a consulting budget. There was an existing line item, not for your software, but to pay outside folks to do this type of planning. Is, is there any truth to that? I would say it's a combination of things. Um, the reason why we were able to move into procurement cycles in such an efficient way is because we were not necessarily replacing consultant budget, but we were helping to expand staff capacity. And, you know, there is quite a bit of funding for either outsourced services or, you know, other software that's supposed to be doing the same thing around expanding staff capacity. And so we were able to tap into those budgets. But I think more importantly, and it is not like any one thing, it was that and the fact that we could be very useful very quickly with, you know, we could just turn on logins, you know, in like a minute. We didn't need a nine-month onboarding like a lot of IT uh, procurement processes were used to because we were able to just turn on and be effective for XYZ project that was coming up already, like a city was already doing a redesign or they were already doing a comprehensive operations and assessment or something. We could say that, hey, you will be two to five times as efficient, as productive with all of your staff hours on this project and save basically 50% of your budget that you had allocated to that project. Why don't you just try us out as a part of it? And they could see the value immediately. And then that's what able, that's what enabled us to get into the sales cycle so quickly. Gotcha. And how do you interact with the open source community? Ooh, yes. So we have been very very thankful for the OpenStreetMap community. We've actually built our entire platform off of OpenStreetMap. And that's been, you know, a big reason why our customers like that as well. If they see something wrong with the way that the map is, you know, describing a certain part of where they where they work, they can actually just go into OSM and edit it. And then it gets reflected back in Remix um, pretty quickly. So that's been incredible. We have used, you know, quite a bit of open source components and have open sourced, you know, a couple of tools ourselves around the way that we work with transit. And honestly, Miles, I'm not the best person to be talking about this. I would love to hand the mic over to to Dan and Danny um, on my team to explicate on that a little bit further. Yeah, I wasn't looking for all the details, but just interested in that dynamic of building on top of this open map, which has enabled your business. It's a fascinating from a business model perspective and fascinating to think about what other businesses can be built on top of it as well. I'm curious, what advice would you give to an aspiring founder? So I think one of the most pivotal things about doing Y Combinator with my co-founders is the fact that it really just gave us a kick in the pants when it came to figuring out our business model. And along with that, because you were were just surrounded by so many other, you know, early stage founders who were kind of, you know, flailing in the same way that you were, it also gave you a sense of camaraderie. And the one piece of advice I remember one of the, the YC partners giving us was, don't fall in love with a solution, fall in love with a problem. And that resonated so much with me because, you know, living in San Francisco, I see 
all of my friends and friends of friends and, you know, everybody on the street is starting their own something or other. And, you know, half the time, you're not even sure if they're solving a problem that's a real problem, or are they just trying to be a founder because they think everyone else is a founder. And so that ethos really rubbed me the wrong way when I moved to San Francisco. I didn't realize it would just be so prevalent. And so I was like, you know, I'm never going to be like that. And then, you know, I became a founder. But I think what is maybe different and the advice I would give is if you're not all day, every day, like reading and soaking up news and the news that you're soaking up is like in the space that you are working in. Like if you're passion and your energy is not aligned with like what you think about normally outside of your work life, like on weekends, then you're going to get exhausted really, really fast. Like for me, um, because I went to planning school, you know, I've been just really interested in urbanism, cities, communities, equity for a long time. That's like what I just read and consume and soak up on a day-to-day basis. And that also became how I started to understand our customers and our customers' needs and what they were trying to do. If they're not one in the same and you become a founder, I think you'll get burnt out really quickly because all your energies are not going to be directed in a way that is where your passion lies. Is there a book or article that you'd recommend to aspiring founders? Yes, many. I was recommended this book called Playing Big, and it's by Tara Moore. Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women who want to speak up, create, and lead. And the reason why I recommend this book, I recommend this book actually to a lot of my my girlfriends, a lot of the women leaders on my team, because there's this pivotal chapter. I think it's chapter four. It's called Unhooking from Praise and Criticism. The reason why that chapter changed me is because you know, for the first couple of years, whenever I would get feedback about anything from anybody, I would just like kind of break down inside, you know, like try to smile externally, but like inside I was broken. And I was just so bad at taking feedback for whatever developmental reasons, you know, whatever happened in my childhood. And this book really helped me reframe the value of feedback and unhook my personal sense of value from the words that somebody else was giving me and be able to take value from that if only if I wanted to. Wonderful that you're being so open and vulnerable sharing lessons you've learned. I think it's going to be really helpful for people. Oh, I hope so. In closing, where can people follow you online? Oh, well, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at teachu88, also on Insta. T288. We're at Remix on Twitter and we're at Remix.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Miles. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for believing in us really early on. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.